Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to the New Books Network's African American Studies channel. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today, our guest scholar is Dr. Annalisa Cox. We'll be talking to her about her new book entitled The Bone and Sinew of the Land, America's Forgotten Black Pioneers and the Struggle for Equality, published by uh, Public Affairs Press. Welcome to the show, Dr. Cox. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm glad to be here. Likewise, I am very happy to finally have you on the program. It has been uh, it's been a process to get us up here to recording, but believe me, I am sure that it's going to be well worth it, and we're going to do very well. Um, folks are going to learn a lot about this particular topic. And so, before we get into the book, um, can I ask you what prompted you to write uh, the Bone and Sinew of the Land? And can you give us a quick uh, a history lesson of the particular reference? Uh, that the first part of the, of the title alludes to? Well, you know, I, I didn't think I was writing this book when I started off writing it. Uh, I assumed, as most historians did, and I actually assert this in my first book, that the rural regions of the Northwest Territory states were relatively homogeneous, right? Uh Historians have long known that this region that we now call the Midwest, uh, at one point it was called the Great West, but originally it was the Northwest Territory. So this was our nation's first free frontier. The 1787 ordinance of the Northwest Ordinance actually set aside this region as free from slavery, which made it the largest piece of land in the New World at that time to be set aside as free from slavery but it also had equal voting rights. Uh, So there was something interesting going on in this region. Historians knew that by 1860, there were over 60,000 African-Americans who were living in that region. And Stephen Vincent, in his excellent book, uh, pointed out that most of those African-Americans seemed to be rural, but nobody had figured out where exactly they were living and what exactly they were doing. So I wanted to find out, because in my first book, I was doing a very geertsy and deep study of one particular community in the 19th century Midwest. But I began to suspect that there was more going on in this region, uh, especially after I went on book tour. And it really, no matter where I went, whether it was Miami, Florida, or Portland, Oregon, invariably somebody would come up to me in the book signing line and say, well, I'm sure you've heard about this community that my great, 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 great grandparents came from or that community. And I hadn't. And not only had I not heard of the community, but it seemed that nobody had heard of the community. So as I began digging, I began to find more and more of these settlements. And it really was a situation where this is a history kind of hidden in plain sight. Uh, It is not like these communities were trying to be secret. 
uh, some of them, some African-Americans in this region were for very good reason, because after the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, it became very, very dangerous for some people to be counted on a federal document. And other activists in that region were protesting federal government and not allowing themselves to be counted, even though they were legally there. John Langston was certainly one of those. Uh, But this was, when I started this out, I really thought that I'd be lucky if I found a couple dozen. And I remember being really excited when I found over 30, because at the time it was assumed that there were maybe five or six. By the time my exhibit opened at the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture a couple of years ago, uh, I was able to identify about 80 settlements. And that's uh, on the map that's on the wall of that museum. By the time the book went to press, I had found over 300. And by settlement, yeah. So this was our nation's first great migration. This was a movement of tens of thousands of free African-Americans onto the Northwest Territorial Frontier, often starting in the 1790s, 1800s. They're coming out and they are purchasing the best land from the federal government. They're often first... I've. The number of times I've come across African-American pioneers who are literally purchasing land deed number one in a particular region of this territory, I was I was just stunned. Whether it's western Wisconsin or eastern Illinois along the Wabash River, this is what they're doing. So they're there early. They're getting good land. They're establishing themselves. They are there for a long time. And they have astonishing levels of wealth. And they are using that rootedness and that wealth to organize and to create extraordinary levels of resistance to the rising inequality and injustice that is occurring around them. Um, as to your second question about the title of the book, the bone mm-hmm. and the bone and sinew of the land is actually that particular phrase comes from an open letter written by a group of land-owning, successful African-American pioneering farmers in Ohio, in and around a community called Carthagena, Ohio, which was actually founded by an African-American pioneer who was not actually unusual, uh, but amazing, and I would say heroic, and that he was a freedom entrepreneur. I coined this term to describe the people who worked while they were enslaved to raise usually a fortune in money to purchase themselves. And then once they did, they often turned right around and purchased members of their families. And this community founder did just that. He purchased his family for the just astounding amount of over $2,200. This is around the 1820s or 1830s. And then he founded the community of Carthagena. So this is an open letter that was sent to the residents of the cities of Ohio, the African-American residents of the cities of Ohio, saying, leave the cities where you are being oppressed, you're being burned out, you're being attacked, you're being mobbed and murdered, and come to the rural regions, come to and become farmers, become the bone and sinew of the land. 
So I, I loved that quote. And then just around the time the book was going to go to press, I discovered, I was appalled to discover that the term bone and sinew men was actually coined by President Andrew Jackson, which, Uh-oh. yeah, that's a problem. <laughs> Uh, because President Andrew Jackson, and as my book makes very clear, and his goals were at complete odds with the goals of African-American equal rights activists and their white allies at this time. Uh, It was actually a term that he coined in his retirement speech from his presidency, the, the term bone and sinew men. But in the end, what I discovered was that African-American equal rights activists, particularly in the Midwest, whether we're talking farmers in Michigan or farmers in Ohio or farmers in Indiana, are publicly using this term in convention speeches, which they're then publishing widely around their states and their region. They are taking that term, they are converting it, they're owning it. And they're recycling it to um, make a claim for their primacy, for their citizenship, for their uh, right to call themselves Americans. And the fact that they are the ones who are actually deeply rooted in this land, that they were there first, that they are there and doing successfully well. And so in the end, after a lot of fraught conversations with my editor, we decided to keep it because we loved what these equal rights activists were doing with this term. And that particular background is is, uh, tremendous because when I think about – the, the history uh, that, that you tell in this story, um, I think one of the more intriguing parts is, you know, how, uh, you know, the, the book that really got me to want to really read your book and, and definitely take the opportunity to read it, digest it, and, and ultimately interview was, uh, you for it was because uh, when I worked at Fort Scott uh, National Historic Site in Fort Scott, Kansas, um, there was a book that I picked up, actually, um, there was actually a sale. Uh, it was either a sale for a book or, or something. I, I discovered a book, nevertheless, from uh, Dr. Quintard Taylor um, out west. Yes, and, he's been um, doing amazing work out there. Yes. Tremendous work. I think he's at uh, University of uh, Washington. I think he might be emeritus by now. But um, he, he wrote the book, uh, In Search of A or The Racial Frontier. And that book just just blew my mind. Um, because I'm I'm someone living, you know, in that in that important state of Kansas. Mm. Uh, though interestingly enough, you would politically today never know it was the the kind of the story that brought it into uh, the union. But uh, that's a whole another story. Uh, but nevertheless, um, it opened up my mind, uh, uh, Dr. Quintar Taylor's work to uh, black pioneers. Mm. Um, And so what it also made me think about was how, you know, kind of the narrative, um, you know, kind of like why have black pioneers been really marginalized in the overall Western expansion narrative? Um, And also someone maybe even in the historiography of it as well. Yeah, I would say that there's definitely been a, I mean, I think there's been a triple hit against this particular region because it is the Midwest which has been assumed to be homogeneously white for so long 
Mm-hmm. And of course, as Quintard Taylor and others have pointed out, the the myth of the frontier and the pioneer has always been described as white, right? But I'd say that that took particular hold for this particular region, which is the first and earliest of our frontiers, right? The Northwest Territory was before the Louisiana Purchase. This we we went to war, to revolutionary war, to win this region, uh, which George III had denied the American colonists uh, when they went to fight the French fort in the 1760s. So this this has particular sort of centrality um, in early America in terms of national identity. So the fact that people of African descent were out there early and doing well even fighting in the War of 1812. Uh, one of my favorite couples, I wasn't able to focus on them. There were so many. Here's, here's the problem. This is a movement, right? So this is, when I say it's the first great migration, I'm really, I'm not joking. I, I want to impress upon people. This is not about just one person or two people or sort of a few exceptional people who are sort of rising. This is a movement. It literally integrates this region. The map that I have at the front of my book is actually a very conservative map because it only shows settlements that were home to land-owning African-American farmers. It doesn't show the mill owners or the general store owners or the blacksmiths or all of the kind of rural entrepreneurs who were successful and doing well at that time. And I I want to stress here, it's statistics are difficult. You know, I, I understand statistics are important to historians and they're a way of understanding the past, a way of understanding the landscape. But when looking and thinking about the history of race relations in America, particularly this region, statistics can be problematic. And here's why. Uh, this This is a very, very visible pioneering group. They're also extremely successful. So say you have a county where there is just one African American farming family. And I came across counties where there were that. In most cases, as I point out on this map, these are not just one farmer. These are settlements with a dozen families or Cass County was 600 people. Uh, So you had a school and a church and a real sort of a real community. But in some cases, it was just one farmer. But in those cases, it was often an immensely successful and wealthy farmer. I'm thinking about here about the Allen family in Illinois, who were actually one of the wealthiest landowners, black or white, in that county. And very quickly after settling in their county, uh, they owned, that family owned close to a thousand acres of land. And that farmer was hiring the local white justice of the peace to tutor his children to read. And also the economics of farming at this time, this is before the reaper. This is before any sort of mechanization of farming. So I had to really understand what pioneer farming looked like. Of course, it was an extraordinary amount of labor. So grain labor, grain was 
by far the most profitable of uh, what you could grow. Uh, hogs and corn were important too, but there was real money to be made from grain. And a lot of these farmers were not just subsistence farmers, they were market farmers. So for this particular family, if they had a few hundred acres under cultivation in grain, a healthy male farmer who really was skilled with a size could harvest about a quarter of an acre of grain a day. Wow. Yeah, that's not much. So that means that if you have a few hundred acres under cultivation, that at harvest time, you are hiring, and, and all everybody around you is white, that means you're hiring all of the able-bodied white people around you to harvest your grain. I mean, in some ways, this was almost a landed gentry situation, right? So the economic impact and the visibility of a farmer like this far outweighs its actual their actual statistical numbers. I, I remember watching Hidden Figures, that movie that came out recently, right, about these right, right, uh, right. women who were mathematical and engineering geniuses who were working at NASA. And there's an amazing scene where uh, one of these uh, geniuses is invited into a top secret meeting filled with white men, right? So if a statistical historian parsed out that room, they would say, well, there's only, you know, she only constitutes a very small percentage of African-Americans in the population of that room. But as she is doing her calculations on that board in front of all those white men, her symbolic importance and sort of power <laughs> far outweighs her actual numbers. And that is what I am seeing on this frontier is that one incredibly successful or wealthy mill owner or general store owner or one of these landed gentry farm families, their numbers far outweigh their their importance far far outweighs their numbers. So there's a sort of a symbolic importance which then helps us to understand the extraordinary violence of the legal and social backlash that occurred against this population. And that, you know, seeing that kind of history is, is pretty interesting to me because what I also think about is um, where um, in the context of, uh, of African-American migratory movement, right? Uh, one of the things that you touched on as well uh, was kind of what were the, um, I guess you'd say, that many of the people who did, uh, many of the African-Americans who didn't move out uh, into the, what was then the Northwest Territory, um, not all of them were free, were they? Um is from the reading of your book, it seemed like some of them might have been, uh, were, were some of them enslaved or were they um, not fully free uh, uh, laborers? Well, there was certainly, there was certainly slavery illegally occurring in this region. And I do follow okay. the extraordinary story of Cornelius Elliott, who mm. was brought into 
the salt mining region of Southern Illinois, which was pretty much hell on earth. I mean, we think of the frontier as being wilderness and woods, and uh, but mining is a form of industrialization that was a, a, like highly industrialized uh, frontier work. And the salt mines of Gallatin County, Illinois, there were all sorts of legal loopholes created to allow for the enslavement of people because bluntly, this was such deadly and horrific work that you couldn't pay people enough to do it. So, um, and there's been actually a fair amount of research done on the history of slavery in Illinois. And um, one of my colleagues, Dr. Hearman, is coming out with a really excellent book in August on the history of slavery in Illinois. So I, I won't go into that too much. Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But uh, because uh, bluntly, what what was going on, what, what I was capturing and intrigued by is this rising backlash. So the Northwest Territory had equal rights. It's a, it's a five-page document, and the word white never shows up in it once. This is deliberate. It actually follows the model of the newly revised North Carolina state constitution, where they removed the word white on who could vote uh, to open up equal voting rights. In fact, in 1792, as I point out in my book, when George Washington ran for president for a second term, the vast majority of states, slave and free in this nation, as well as the Northwest Territory, had equal voting rights. And then you start seeing this backlash occurring. Ohio is the first state that is carved out of this region. And in 1803, whites who outnumbered the earliest and successful African-American pioneers in that region, voted and created a state constitution that had white in it as defining citizenship. And I find this really interesting because they weren't willing to get rid of the part of the ordinance that said it would be free of slavery, but they were willing to erase equal rights. And what one really sees happening in this region is that there were two dichotomies before the Civil War in the North particularly in the Northwest Territory states. It wasn't just slavery versus freedom. It was also equality versus prejudice or equality versus injustice. And that second one was, while it's intertwined with the first, is separate and is important. And I think that these pioneers really reveal the importance of that struggle uh, for equality that is occurring before the Civil War. And also, I thought one of the more profound portions of your book, um, Dr. Cox, was, you know, you had mentioned the convention movement. And, uh, you know, as we had mentioned before offline, uh, that politically, I thought one of the more interesting parts about your book was how you have, and you mentioned this before even, where most people, when they think about folks who are moving to a particular place in this period, that it seemed that prosperity would have been better had in 
in urban areas, right? That that the urban areas were the areas where freedom uh, could have been most uh, 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 would have been strongest, right? But one of the cool parts about your book, I think, was that that's not that wasn't necessarily the case in this particular region, um, in the um, in the state uh, in the states that you're looking at here, um, and and not only that, but when you go to the conventions movement um, as well, you know that really the convention movement was you know very very not only strong but it could be you know it could be said it was, really began there um as well um and so i definitely appreciated that part of the book and learning about that particular history well before um i started to get involved with the conventions uh a color conventions project uh through the university of delaware where i'll be going to school in the fall yeah i mean it's interesting because we i think we think of cities as the great melting pot and also We've long had an assumption, just sort of a post-Civil War assumption, that African-Americans in the North were primarily urban and African-Americans in the South were primarily rural. I mean, they're both disenfranchised, right? But um, mm-hmm. that's, been, that's been the setup. That's been sort of the paradigm. And to be fair, through most of the 19th century, Northeastern African-Americans were primarily urban, but Midwestern, Northwestern territory African-Americans were not urban. In fact, many of them were coming out to this region before there were cities. I mean, long before there was a Chicago or what we call a city of Detroit. They might be in Fort Detroit, which is a very different Uh thing, right? So this is a real, really different way of thinking about it. And the cities of the North both the Northwest and the Northeast in the 1830s were hit by a level of violence that was truly appalling. And it seems to have swept almost every major urban area of the North during this period. This wasn't just Boston, New York, and Philadelphia or Cincinnati. It was everywhere. I mean, Alton, Illinois is known for you know, the the death of Elijah P. Lovejoy, but his was just one of many attacks. And while his murder was held up, he was sort of this glorious and admittedly very handsome uh, white, <laughs> white abolitionist who was murdered trying to defend his press. There were many African-Americans who were actually murdered, lynched, and killed during this period in cities. So mm. um, the, there was, while not perfect, the rural and frontier regions of the Northwest Territory offered spaces for advancement to occur that could not occur in the urban areas of the North there was not space for them anymore. The segregation and the color line were actually violently being created in the cities of the North during this time. So there's a reason why Oberlin College occurred in a small rural community of Ohio. Ah. Right? There's a reason why John Langston was the first African-American to we know of to be elected in a free and open election to political office in this United States. And he was living on his 200 plus acre farm uh, in rural Ohio at that time. Uh, the, you know, when schools were literally being burned to the ground or pulled off of their foundations in cities of the Northeast from New Haven, Connecticut, 
to um, uh, you know New Hampshire, there were revolutionary schools being built in the cornfields of Indiana, where African Americans and whites, boys and girls, were in elite pre-collegiate institutions being prepared for a life in college. And um, Union Literary Institute is one of my favorite examples, but it was by far not the only one. So despite the backlash that was occurring in the Northwest Territory states, the terrible loss of rights, the right to vote, um, the right to uh, testify against a white person in court, which is particularly debilitating for white entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial farmers, there were still spaces where African-Americans and African-American whites were working to uphold those founding principles that all men are created equal, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that, that, that's so profound um, because there's so the, – the, one of my mentors, she's a, a scholar of uh, early black education and, and black education 19th and 20th centuries. And learning about the, the history of black education and how important and how strong – it was and, and still is in this particular region. And it's so profound. I never thought about the fact of how Oberlin, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I, I knew that it wasn't in the city per se, but it never really occurred to me that it was a rural area, that Oberlin College, which has been, you know, largely like that liberal bastion um, it, th- throughout its history up until now as well. Um, and, and and you know, so you, and you mentioned you know John Langston, and, and and really that Langston name being so important, not only in this particular time frame, but also going towards the end of the nineteenth century, going into the twentieth as well. Um, I, I think is very profound too. Um, and so, could you tell us? You talk, you talked about the the schooling part, so that's very institutional. What were the other institutions that African Americans built um, in, in the former Northwest Territories that you speak of? Well, first, I want to add, just um, to be fair, uh, Oberlin College, like much of the Northwest Territories, experienced its own form of backlash. And um, there's been a brilliant book that's been written about this. And actually, by the 1890s, much of that school was segregated. Um, this was a great mm-hmm. sorrow and distress. But um, the the housing and even the halls started to become segregated at Oberlin. So the, the what was rising in this country and in the Northwest Territories, uh, what we call Jim Crow, right? And we identified that as being Southern, was also occurring in this region as well, there is no. It is not a coincidence that the Klan rose with such ferocity and such vast numbers across all of these Northwest Territory states. Because in many ways, they are continuation of the kind of uh, prejudice and racism that had been rising in that region, uh, starting in the 1820s and 1830s. But um, back to the question about institutions. Churches, <laughs> yep. yeah, churches were a major, major part of community building in the frontier and rural Northwest. And the both the Baptist and the AME Church were a very important part of the connections and ties between these communities. So there's been a lot that's been written about Quakers, right, and their movement into this region, uh, often mm-hmm. bringing uh, African-descended people with them. 
but I've come across a number of examples of uh, not so well studied, but of Baptists coming up into this region in the 1800s, 1810s, um, founding integrated churches, uh, African-Americans being founding members of these churches as early as 1806, strongly abolitionist, strongly pro-equality. This was something that was really sweeping the nation at this time. And then you had the rise of the AME church, along with backlash, when a lot of these African-Americans were being forced out of the white churches they'd been attending for years, where those churches started segregating. They no longer you know, they didn't want to sit in the back pews. Uh, they started to found AME churches. And Bishop Quinn was a huge part of this. Uh, he was coming out in the late 1830s. And by the 1840s, he had founded over 40 churches in this North, in these Northwest Territory states. And he was he was an astounding figure. I, I, any of you are fans of Django Unchained. This is who I think of, right? So he was beautifully dressed. He'd always wear white gloves, and he was extremely good horseman. And he loved to ride a, a half-wild white horse. And he would come galloping into town, and he would make the horse rear, and he would jump off his back as if it was as it was still rearing, and he would start either singing a hymn or preaching as, as soon as his feet hit the ground. I mean, it must have just been an astonishing sight. He had incredible courage. He traveled from St. Louis down into Louisville, Kentucky. He was all over the Northwest Territory states, uh, and he was helping to tie these communities together through faith. Mm. And, and, and that that's a really cool uh, particular culture of reference with, uh, with Django Unchained. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I definitely appreciated that one. Um, you know, uh, an, an institution building, I think, is one of the more profound aspects where, you know, when you, when you try to think about how do people um, and and I spoke to uh, Dr. Martha uh, S. Jones about this with with her new book on um, uh, race and rights in antebellum America on how how do African Americans throughout all the struggles that they deal with uh, for, for all, honestly forever but particularly to the periods that we're speaking about here but how do they develop um, their own personal politics of belonging um, because they are thwarted in in way or not necessarily thwarted, but there are so many barriers that are put up against yeah. them um, yes. where it's like you have the per- public perception of what the United States is supposed to be and what our founding principles are. But through lived experiences, how do how do African-Americans coalesce that kind of it's not necessarily a dichotomy, but that that the, the overall messiness that that's involved in it. And, um, you know, I think one of the more profound uh areas of your book in, in the total sense is that I would say that your question, your, your, your book stands to answer of uh, some of those questions through, through how you uh, uh, create, you know, your, your, your work here. And that's definitely much appreciated. Well, you know, one of the things I, I was really surprised to see is that when these African-American equal rights activists are speaking out in the 1830s and 1840s, they're talking about lost rights. They're not just being utopian minded. They're not just saying, hey, you know, remember the words of the Declaration of Independence. They're actually saying, 
remember the rights we had under the Northwest Territorial Ordinance that were stolen from us. Like they are (laughs) odd as it may sound, because a favorite term among historians to talk about this, what I call the second wave of abolitionism in the 1830s, is to describe people as radical. But actually, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But what if instead they're conservative? And the young Lincoln, in his first ever published speech, refers to this, right? He's referring to the outbreaks of mob violence that are happening, whether it's happening in Alton, Illinois, or St. Louis, even against African Americans. And he's saying, maybe it's our generation turning its back upon the values that the revolutionary generation who's now dying describes them in this beautiful language as pillars toppling, right? Um, it's not just beautiful language. It's actual pillars. It's, <laughs> it's actual sort of legal and political pillars that are falling. Uh, one of the most heartrending scenes for me uh, to write about in this book is this African-American pioneer who comes into Indiana in the late 1830s and he's having to be he's having to register himself and his daughter and he stands in front of that white county clerk and he wants to tell that clerk I voted in North Carolina I was in other words he was a propertied citizen and until 1838 you could vote in the state of North Carolina if you were Af- if you were free African American and there's that same sense of loss uh, for African American pioneers in the Northwest Territory. They they refer to it in speeches in Ohio in the 1840s that these are rights that have been stolen from them. So in some ways, they are they are the conservative ones, and it is the new generation of the mob the sort of mobocrats pro slavery pro-inequality, pro-injustice generation that is rising during the Jacksonian period who are could be considered the radicals, right? Not conservative. Mm-hmm. And, and that, wow, that, that particular uh, conception is really, 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 really cool because, you know, like you mentioned before, so many people conceive of uh, the 1830s and the simmering 1840s as, you know, like you said, that second abolitionist period, but also that, that word radical, it's almost like, um, you, you know, you know, those words that are just so overused that it seems like it loses its, 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 its importance, right? If mm-hmm. everybody's uh, characterized as, as, uh, as radical, then nobody can really be radical. Right. Um, and, and but also so yep, yep. It, it makes, it makes the movement, it decentralizes the movement by calling by calling the second wave of pro-equal rights and abolitionism radicals instead of tying them to the first abolitionist movement of the 1780s and 1790s. Um, it, it it makes them outsiders. There's there's a, again right. We're, we're very interested today in the idea of who belongs, who doesn't, who's an insider, who's an outsider, um, and if we lose the fact that and obviously it's important to talk about our founding fathers, right? 
it's important to talk about who they were and mm-hmm. what they were thinking and what they were doing. But I am also really interested in the ways that the founding citizens of this nation, black and white, were interpreting the Constitution, the Northwest Territorial Ordinance, the Declaration of Independence in that first generation, in the 1780s, 1790s, and 1810s. What were they doing on the ground with that stuff? Regardless, because obviously our founding fathers weren't monarchs, right? They were creating this bizarre thing called the Democratic Republic, (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, however imperfect it was. So if what we're seeing playing out in the Northwest Territory and the Northwest Territorial Ordinance of 1787 are the best ideals of the revolution, then we have to take that into account when we think about the founding ideals of this nation. Very, very true. Very true. Um, Another question that I had for you um, about your book was how um, when it came to, you know, as, as the period begins to to shift, right? The the politics of the nations begin to shift. You spoke about the Jacksonian period. So, you know, the the late 1820s, 1830s, and that goes into the 1840s, right? So as time changes um, and, and the nation gets larger, you start to have wars, right? You have the Mexican-American War. The, the nation is beginning to expand again. Mm-hmm. Um were there any particular changes and, and strategic sh- changes as well and anything in the sense of uh, of the activism changing in any way as the time periods uh, begin to push further and further to what would eventually be the Civil War? Though the folks in that time did not necessarily know that that particular uh, moment would occur. Well, when we think of the Civil War, I have to say I often think of the pre-conflict as being, you know, bleeding Kansas or something. But oh, yeah. So many, right. So many of these conflicts were breaking out in the Northwest Territory states before, long before this. So Illinois in the early 1820s had a constitutional crisis that there were battles breaking out. I mean, people were being burned in effigy. There were mobs because there was a strong move right after the Missouri Compromise to make Illinois a slave state. Okay, so this conflict is already, it's already starting to break out in this region. Um, And I think that one of the things we have to remember is the Northwest Territory actually saw the largest movement of human beings in a ever to occur on this planet in a very brief period of time. So between 1787, and I'm not the first historian who noted this, I'm just retelling it, right? Between 1787 and 1837, roughly 4 million people came to this region. This was astounding, right? It's amazing the planet didn't tip a bit when this (laughs) happened. So if there's anything we can learn from what happened during this period, especially keeping in mind that African-Americans or pioneers were some of the earliest and most successful, they're, they're very, very early as whites begin to move in around them, is that racism in this region, and I would argue that racism 
in America before the Civil War arose in the face of Black success, not in the face of Black failure. This is really, really important to remember. Hmm. Yeah, and 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 that is actually very that is actually a very good concept to remember, um, mm-hmm. especially when we try to, you know, because I think the the, the unfortunate part about history um, and how it's being a lot of times presented is in the timeline aspect. Uh, but this is a useful way to uh, to to really ground people um, as well. And um, one of the parts too that um, I wanted to speak to you about um, as well was. Um, you have, you know, there, there are a lot of stories of very f- powerful women um, in, in your in your book as well. Um, and, and before we get towards the uh, the concluding areas of the book, I, I'd love for you to, to speak about some of the uh, some of the um, very, very important uh, uh, black women characters that are that are involved um, in, in the maneuvering in your in your book as well, if you don't mind. Yeah. So, um women are really central to this narrative for a lot of reasons um, and central to this history. Uh, they were central in the life of the nation and this region during this time, because the vast majority of people were farmers in the early Republic. Sure. There were mines and there were, there was some industry, but this is basically pre-industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. So the way to get ahead in America was to own good land and farm it well. And that was a family project. And I, I found it fascinating. I came across a diary written, a sort of travel account written by a very wealthy uh, New York City uh, native who traveled out to visit his son in the early 1820s out to Vincennes in right along the Wabash River in Western Indiana. And he was astonished by how many women he saw working. Um, and he doesn't talk about race. He's just saying, you know, there's, there's just women out in the fields and there's women doing this and women doing that. So it is, uh, there was just a lot of, you couldn't have, it was very difficult to have a farm if there wasn't a family. I, I did actually come across a number of women who were running farms on their own, who were head of household, whether widows or just even on their own, African-American women. But African-American women were also leaders in this early movement in really astonishing ways. One of my favorites is Polly Strong, who, like, as Manisha Sina points out uh, in her wonderful book, The Slave's Cause, it was often enslaved people themselves who were enforcing new constitutions when states started abolishing slavery during this period of the fervor for freedom in the early republic. And Polly Strong was one of those women in Indiana. She was held illegally enslaved through a loophole dealing with the early French population in that region. And Mm -hmm. when when Indiana became a state in 1816, it, it really and firmly abolished slavery, unlike Illinois, which had very gray and fuzzy language about slavery when it became a state in 1818. A very different court system there as well. But in Indiana, she decided that she and her family were going to be free. And this was such 
this took so much courage, particularly for a young woman to do. She was held enslaved by um, a man, very, very uh, wealthy and powerful uh, French trading family who traveled between Vincennes and Fort Detroit. They were um, Mich- uh, Michelin Mackinac. They were just all over the Northwest Territory and they held people enslaved. And she was determined to be free. She was determined her family, her mother, her brother were going to be free. But she also faced terrible, terrible repercussions. And I, there's there's subtext to the court's response to her that make it very obvious that they understand the threats that she had undergone. Um, there's there's more explicit ones in Illinois where uh, the enslavers of some of these women who are petitioning for their freedom describe, um, oh, you know, I just beat them a little bit to get them to not do this, right? But there's there's just terrible tortures that can be done to a young woman to force her to back off of a court case like this. But she teamed up with a young white lawyer called Amory Kinney, and they were really determined to overcome slavery in this state. And while Amory Kinney, who was white and male, and the law protected him at this time, was his life was being threatened for taking this, this case forward. He's very open about the, the fact that this happened. I can't even imagine what kind of threats and tortures that Polly Strong was undergoing. But she, even after her case was... She lost her case in Vincennes. She continued to take it on all the way to the state Supreme Court, where the chief justice actually quoted the, the sort of first lines of the new state constitution, which basically re-said the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal with an equal right to a life of liberty and happiness, pursuit of happiness, when he told her that she had won her case and slavery and all forms of bondage were thus finally overcome in the state of Indiana. It wouldn't have happened without Polly Strong. And, and, and that particular story is why I, I'm, I'm, for one, glad that I asked the question, but then also that you that you chose um, that particular story because um, – to, to, to let the viewers in on a quick secret, there 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 are many different um, uh, stories of black women that uh, that that Dr. Cox could have chosen from in in, in her text, and so uh, I'm definitely appreciative uh, of this. And so um, and so yeah, because I also going into know, the yeah, yeah yeah I just want to say I also of course follow yeah, the yeah, farming course. women like Kaziah Greer um, and uh, Nancy Lyles people who were pioneers and farming, it wasn't all the farming life and life as a pioneer frontier person um, isn't all about court cases. It isn't all about battles, but it is, is its own struggle for survival. And their roles are very important as well. It was one of, I have to admit, Adam, it's one of the biggest challenges of writing this book. We're talking about mm. tens of thousands, you know, tens of thousands of people, hundreds of settlements, each of these settlements deserves a book. Each of these families deserves a book. And one of the biggest challenges of writing this book was being forced to skim, right? Because this is basically 
a brand new field. I think it would take a hundred historians, a hundred years to even begin to do justice to it. I can only hope that more historians start start working on this history because it needs work. Mm. And, and you hear that, uh, budding graduate students like myself and, and others, you know, you, you got you to gotta call and, and hopefully you shall respond like the tradition says. Um, because as you say that there's so many, you know, as, as the, the folks who will, who will definitely pick this book up, um, you, you'll see that, you know, uh, you, you begin your book um, with, your, with the map, um, with the data set that you, that you spoke of about the total sediments and for, for the states of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan, you have the different plots. But also, I think the cool part is to really let people know, because I don't think a lot of people know much about this history. So the great part about your book is that you have demarcated like the different the different locations throughout the different uh, states about, you know, where they are, uh, you know, about, about you know where the actual settlements are, um, because what it what it really goes to show is that you know African Americans have been in and around pretty much every single region um, in the United States, and so even though the contemporary there might not be you know extreme high extremely high amounts uh, of folks living in particular places that. When we speak about the Great Migration, that uh, is a, was it? I think Isabel Wilkerson, I think, is the 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 woman who who wrote the book, um, "The Warmth of Other Suns." I think is the yes. title of the book. Um, but as great as that book is, and obviously that's a tremendous book, that there's there's so many other stories to be told, and it's why historians. Uh, well, I wouldn't say all historians are going to be employed because we all know how the job market is, but there are always stories to be told. Let's say that. Right. Uh, I, th- I think that's a safe uh, assumption to make. Well, I think that uh, I, I, I'm in agreement with uh, wonderful historians like Charles Roche and Stephen Vincent, who were also pioneers in this field, that there is so much more to be found. There is so much more that's buried, uh, even in the Northeast, even in the frontier and rural Northeast. Uh, it, it reminds me of um, that wonderful novel, uh, A Mercy by Toni Morrison, where mm. she's describing frontier Virginia in the 1680s and 1690s, and she does an amazing job capturing the confusion and complication and diversity of the peoples who lived in that region at that time. These were the roots of some of these pioneering families, right? Many of whom could trace their freedom back to the 1600s. And uh, what what she gets at and, and what we can understand is that Diversity is a baseline in the new world, right? And it is segregation that is the violently created norm. Once it's created, it takes real will and force to overcome. But but diversity is actually the baseline. It is the norm. And I feel like even sort of within corporate America today, like we talk about diversity training or diver- as if it's an add-on, but it actually was not originally an add-on in America. Uh, it was, it was destroyed and we may have to work to regain it, but uh, also integration does not equal equality, right? This is really, really important. And I, 
I, it's very important what happened in the 1960s. But if we can learn anything from the history of slavery, it's that integration does not equal equality because, of course, the system of slavery was an incredibly integrated and intimate system. It was just a system of horrific injustice and misuse of power. Um, but integration in itself is not an answer. Equality is the answer. And and that is definitely very true because, you know, uh, you, you had mentioned uh, some a little bit ago about, you know, how the Klan, uh, that, that to you is no surprise, I believe is what you said, that the Klan is, you know, you know, it, it may have been started in uh, Pulaski, Tennessee, uh, on the on the hills of the Civil War, but it was a very influ- and, and, well, I don't I can't speak of contemporary, so I won't make that leap. But um, but its influence in you know areas that that you mentioned in the book um, that definitely is unquestioned, um, mm. and and so you know the legacy of backlash in the United States is definitely not a contemporary one. It has historical legs of the particular genealogical record to, to be brought about. Um, and, uh, in, in the latter portion of your book, uh, when you speak about the, uh, the, the, in the conclusion area, you, you speak about that a bit as well. Um, to really, that, uh, yeah, yep, yep. Yeah. And that is something that I really hope historians will work on further because there's long been sort of a confusion about this region, the Midwest, and the rise in that the rural regions of the Klan. Uh, but it 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 seems no coincidence to me that they arose and they arose with particular fierce fierce virulence around some of the oldest and most successful of these pioneering settlements. Um, and so when uh, I feel like oftentimes the term North and South are bandied about in ways that sort of uh, they're meant to read Southern is often translated in newspapers today as sort of meaning a certain type of white racism. Um, Northern means a certain type of sort of liberalism, but there were, you know, one of the most infamous and horrific lynchings that occurred in the 20th century that gave rise to the song Strange Fruit, that really amazing and terrible photograph of the two men hanging from the tree with whites underneath pointing up at them as if they're in a party, is Marion, Indiana. Mm-hmm. It is not, it's not Mississippi. And that county of Indiana had a thriving early pioneer community in it uh, that had a, a AME church by the 1840s. So there, the history of backlash, the history of lynching, uh, you know, there is a reason why these regions have lost many. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> have lost uh, you. many of these elements. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Excuse me, y'all. Um, and um, that that's actually very true. Um, especially, uh, excuse me, in light of the recent. Um, a museum, um, mm. a memorial site down in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, uh, through the work of uh, Brian Stevenson and the uh, Equal Justice Initiative, um, is you know that he a part of his work was going to lynching sites and taking uh, a sediment, taking ground from it to be able to deposit it back 
uh, in the memorial site. And I think that that is so profound because it's it's a way of uh, of, of recognizing the the pain and, and recognizing that um, when we talk about you know the push for for integration and the push for equality, more importantly, that you know. But I, but I thought integration already happened. Well, hey, right. you know, which one do you really want? I would much rather have an equal society uh, because I think that that's something that's a, a, a larger um, a, a freedom dream, as the great Robin Kelly would talk about. Um, right. And, and so, and you know, that project, the project of that museum is so incredibly important because it deals with another form of buried history, right? Another form of forgetting. But in some ways, what was happening in the Northwest Territory, that act of forgetting, that act of burying has been so successful <laughs> that uh, it is well, only just now, right, beginning to unbury it. But it, it doesn't make less important the martyrdom and murder a successful African-American entrepreneurs in this region long before the Civil War or just after the Civil War, less important. Um, I think it is essential that we realize that it happened there too. There needs to be a reckoning. This truth needs to be unburied as well. Um, And we need to honor people um, uh, like the, you know, the wealthy farmer who in Dark County, Ohio, in the 1870s, had a group of white men with masks over their heads surround his farmhouse at night and start shooting into it and murdered him. Um, this is this is also part of this is not about North versus South, right? This is a national mm-hmm. this is a national issue, and I often think about Desmond Tutu's. Truth and reconciliation, right? Mm-hmm, we do need mm-hmm. to have we do need to have the truth first. Yep, and there cannot be any reconciliation if there's no truth, and that's why the truth of someone, two people, um, two people with um, historical time in the Midwest, uh, one being Ida B. Wells, who in her chronicle, uh, in her uh, pathbreaking work. Um, on on lynching uh, statistics well before anyone else ever did it. She was a pioneer in that sense. Um, mm. How she said that it was not necessarily the poor African-Americans that were being lynched, though there were poor African-Americans lynched. It was those folks who were deemed as quote-unquote successful, that those were some of the folks who were largely being um, uh, murdered and, and assailed and and removed from from areas. Um, mm. And so there's that part, but also someone like Malcolm X, who is from uh, uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and had lived in Michigan, said that you know the you know we should stop talking about the South because if you're south of the Canadian border, you're south. Because what you know Malcolm <laughs> was doing was saying that. The entire nation is complicit because if we're going to say that we are a nation, then we should be accountable for the entirety of it. And that includes the atrocities that go on not only in the South, but also throughout the other regions of the of the nation, because 
in my understanding of history is also if the particular narrative of a particular atrocity is only seen through the lens of a singular location, then everywhere else it occurs will be deemed as lesser than when judged from the most malignant part of that tumor. That's an interesting point, Adam, because uh, it surprised me when I was looking at the rise of violence in cities and urban areas of the North in the 1830s, is that in each case, when described in, in urban histories, there are localized reasons that are described for that particular event, whether it's, oh, the Ohio River, it was, there wasn't a lot of rain and the Ohio River dried up. So there were a lot of like rivermen in Cincinnati in this time, or, uh, oh, there were a lot of Irish people coming into New York City. Oh, oh, there's always a local reason when in reality, this was a national event that was occurring. And as I point out in my book, it was often leaders, it was senators and mayors, um, uh, newspapermen, sheriffs, justices of the peace who were organizing these acts of violence against middle-class and successful African-Americans in this wave of backlash. But I want to stress that this is this is a two-part story, right? The first mm-hmm. one is, is the rising, and, and then the second part is the backlash. But if we lose the history of that first advancement, the first fervor for freedom, the first abolitionist movement, which, you know, Ira Berlin rightly calls the slow emancipation, peace. right? The slow emancipation. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously people were held enslaved in New Jersey when the Civil War broke out. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, this was an emancipation movement that resulted in entire slave states tipping towards freedom and entire states, most of the nation tipping towards equality for a generation that unless we understand that portion of it, we can't understand the backlash. And, and, and thank you for that, that portion that, that you just mentioned, because I think uh, our listeners would definitely appreciate uh, that our last, you know, 10 minutes. So I really, that's a great uh, uh, cherry on top to that. Um, and so now that this book is completed and it is ready to be out there for the folks to read it, which believe me, you will see a surge in the numbers because of this interview. I'm claiming it. I'm claiming that. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, nevertheless, what um, now that this is over, um, you know, what else can we expect from you uh, down the line? Uh, because I'm, I know that this book is definitely something that uh, is definitely an, an important work. And um, going forward, what what other uh, what other projects uh, are you involved in? Because I know that you talked about your work at the Smithsonian. Um, what other uh, projects in public history uh, or, or in, um, in, a, in written, you know, uh, texts, uh, you know, are, are you going to be involved in down the line? Well, um, I have to admit there is so much that has come out of this project. Uh, again, mm-hmm. when I say 100 historians could take 100 years and not cover it all, uh, I've been almost overwhelmed with uh, choices of what to do for my next project, but it's kind of up to my editor. And at the moment, we are in conversation oh. about my next project. So I'm afraid uh, that's between me, my editor, and my agent, uh, unfortunately. That is but, that's, hey, okay. uh, know, know <laughs> that I am moving forward uh, and uh, definitely working on um, 
a couple of different ideas, but I certainly hope that more will enter this field because it is a massive field and it needs uh, more hands to the plow. Well, uh, I definitely uh, will be someone who uh, will definitely hope to put his hands on the plow like the great Mahalia Jackson uh, once said in in one of her spirituals. Um, And so, you know, going forward, I definitely appreciate you uh, uh, sitting down with us today um, to to be able to speak about this tremendous book, The Bone and Sinew of the Land. Yep. America's Forgotten Black Pioneers and the Struggle for Equality. And uh, once again, this is published by Public Affairs Press. And um, we will definitely have you on the program. I surely hope so. Uh, uh, whenever uh, your next book comes for publication. And uh, just know that you have friends over here at the New Books Network's African-American Studies channel. Thank you, Adam. You did a wonderful job. It's been my pleasure. Very good. And so until next time, this is Adam McNeil speaking with Dr. Anna, uh, with Dr. Anna. Lisa Cox. Yes. And so we are definitely appreciative of the time that we spent with her today. And until next time, folks, African American Studies Channel, over and out.